Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935 on this tough question Tuesday, if you'd like to join me on the program. And uh, let's see who is up. Glenn, welcome to the program. Hey, Gino. Hey. Hey, um, my, my call is regarding your query about does God have a, a body or is he spirit or along those lines. But anyway, I had a, uh, a situation, this is a, almost 40 years ago, and I lived in Southern California. I was newly saved, and I was in front going into an Alpha Beta market with some Jehovah Witnesses out front. And we got into a conversation about this very subject. And I said, I know you think he's some kind of phantom. If he walks by a mirror, there's no reflection or anything like that. My, my contention is he does have a body of flesh and bones after he rose from the dead because he had a barbecue on the beach and ate fish and bread with his disciples. And she said, Glenn, I don't have a problem with that. Um, Abraham ate food with the angels in Genesis chapter 18. And I thought, hmm. And I told her, I said, I was honest. I said, you know what? I'm stumped. I don't have an answer for you, but here's what I'll do. I'm going to go home and pray. If God gives me something to share with you, I'll be back here tomorrow. If I don't have anything, you won't see me. I no sooner had gotten in my car, and I felt, I don't know how to explain it, but this urgency to pray right then and there. So I started praying, and as I'm driving home, God told me, this is what I want you to tell her. You take that same passage of Scripture, and you're going to ask two questions first. Does God have a body and flesh and bones, or is he spirit? She's going to give you, she's going to answer with John 4:24, and she did. And then he said, the next thing you're going to ask is, how many Lord Jehovah's are there? And I didn't understand that question. I had no concept of what they had to do with the conversation. It didn't really matter. Because when I did that, and her reaction, I, I, I need to back up. He also told me, when you go back to her, don't use your Bible. Have her read out loud from her New World Translation that passage. I went back the next day. She was there. And I asked her, I said, hey, I wanted to follow up with you. I spent some time in prayer and felt like God to give me something for you. She says, uh, and I told her, I asked her, does God have a body and flesh and blood or is he spirit? She says, well, in John 4, 24, it says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And I said, okay, we agree on that. And I said, my next question is, how many Lord Jehovah's are there? And she says, seriously? And I said, yeah. Seriously. She says, there's just one. I said, okay. And then I said, would you mind reading for me Genesis 18, 1, out loud? I have a New King James Version of the Bible. It says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And the New World Translation back then at that time, it said, the Lord Jehovah. She didn't get past the word Jehovah. She stopped. Her eyes got as big as saucers. She was, she was livid with me not with me. She thought she was. And she says, I know what you're trying to do. And I said, ma'am, I don't know what I'm trying to do. 
But I'm telling you right now, if God has spoken to you and shown you something, if I was you, I'd take a bit a deeper look at it. And I left. So I don't know what happened to her, but God used that passage, that same passage she challenged me on. He turned it right around and used it to show her that um, not that God has a body of flesh and blood, but that his son came here and does, and he's called the Lord Jehovah as well. So anyway. Right. So the way that I think about that is that the theophany or the Christophany, God who has no body, appears in forms of intelligibility. In other words, Uh God will manifest, if you want to use that term, in an intelligible fashion. So to Uh your point, God is a spirit in John 4.24. He is a spirit being. But also, God is invisible. Um, Uh When it... So when... A, a spirit is also invisible. So even though God led Israel out by a means of a pillar of fire, he was never seen by the nation. And and so in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, it says, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. So God is invisible. He cannot be seen. So what, what do we do with all of the passages of Scripture that talk about God being seen? And to your point, this is one of, to me, the most fascinating but also compelling reasons to believe that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, uh-huh. but that God is invisible. He said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. John wrote in John one eighteen, no one has seen God at any time. The one and only God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. In John one eighteen, so the Bible makes it abundantly clear that whatever God is and however God is, that He is real, that He is intelligible, and He can be explained and understood. And this is the the most important part through Jesus Christ the Lord. And so we have absolutely no understanding. I'm going to suggest or limited understanding apart from the revelation that's given to us in creation, in our conscience, and in Christ. Can't argue with that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks for your call on that interesting story. You're welcome. welcome. 303-873-1935, that's the number. If you want to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. And uh, happy to take your call. You know, uh, Paul testified. He said, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. In what sense? How do we know God is a creator? Because there's a creation. It, Paul writes in Romans one twenty, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 15, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the prototokos over all creation. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. And to Timothy again in 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. So there is a sense that God is invisible, immortal, eternal. 303-873-1935, which begs yet another question, but I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. Now, I've been talking about, you know, the question surrounding, does God have a body? And, of course, um, there is a sense in which the Son of God has a body because God, the second person of the Trinity, acquires a second nature, a human nature, and has a body. But fundamentally, God is a spirit, and God is invisible. And he is also known as the invisible God. And according to the Bible, he's not subject to limitations in what sense? In the sense of being a spirit being, God isn't subject to the limitations of a body as are human beings. He doesn't have any body parts. He doesn't have human passions. God isn't composed of any material elements. And so whatever makes material material, God doesn't consist of those things. Therefore, he can't be seen without our natural eyes or experienced in our dare I use the term, physical, material, natural senses. And so in the book of Job, the question is raised in Job chapter 11, verse 7, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? And the answer is no. God's depths and limits are not discoverable. So spirit is not so much an attribute of God as it is a mode of his existence. So is God a spirit? Yes. In what way is God a spirit? In the way that he exists. And in what way does he exist? He is self-existent. In other words, the universe in which we live in the moon and the stars, or as the old song would say, um, <laughs> what's the song now? I've, lo- I've lost it. It'll come to me, but the, yeah, the moon and the stars above. And 
in a thing called love. So the physical material elements that make reality reality in, in the sense of the constituent elements of matter, motion, energy, space, time, God doesn't require any of those things in order to exist. So God acts and exists as a spirit. In John chapter 6, verse 63, it says, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And so God is a spirit. God is invisible. He's not subject to limitations. Um, God doesn't allow the making of idols. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, you'll remember Moses was told, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5. And so Moses also wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 14, And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and the judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Take careful heed to yourselves, For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that's in the water beneath the earth, and take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven And when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to his people, to be his people and an inheritance as you are this day. These are strong words that, again, there is no image, period, that can accurately, adequately, appropriately represent God. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal? says the Holy One. So again, one of the reasons for that is because God is a spirit. 303-873-1935. That's the number. If you want to join me on the program. Hey, if you're sick and tired of achy joints, if you dread the idea of surgery, 
well, you can call QC Kinetics today. The state of healthcare is always changing. The old ideas like steroids and surgery are no longer your only options. Regenerative medicine at QC Kinetics is transforming lives with innovative, non-surgical, drug-free treatments that deliver lasting results. Do you have knee pain, like me, back pain, shoulder pain, from arthritis or injury or Don't let the pain keep you from living your best life. QC Kinetics advanced state-of-the-art treatments harness and direct your body's natural ability to restore and repair damaged joint tissue. Hey, this is a revolutionary approach that can get you long-term relief with no downtime. So you should probably make 2024 the year that you reclaim your mobility. You reclaim your independence. You can walk, run, play, live Without the danger and trauma of surgery and without harmful drugs, call QC Kinetics now for a free consultation. That's 303-900-8986, 303-900-8986. So, I've been talking about God and about why Christians believe that God doesn't have a body. But again, God becomes a human. Well, doesn't that mean God has a body? Well, when Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago, he takes on a human nature. And that human nature includes a body. And even though we believe as Christians that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, will forever be in that body. His divine nature is not material. His body is a human body. It's not a divine body. And previous to his coming to earth, he didn't possess a body. And the body that he will possess for eternity will be a glorified body. So this doesn't mean that God has some shadowy existence. God is a real person with genuine existence. His nature can't be fully appreciated by human beings, by the human mind. And it cannot be adequately described with human language. I get that this is hard to comprehend. 303-873-873. 1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome to Tough Question Tuesday. If you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. And on the Tough Question Tuesday, I often get asked the question about... Why did God order the killing of people in the Old Testament? And, of course, that's a complicated question, and I'm happy to talk about that. And, of course, one of my favorite questions is what determines if a person goes to heaven or hell? And, of course, that question is perhaps one of the most important questions that you you could ever ask. 
And by the way, again, if you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. Happy to take your calls, and um, so let's go to a couple of calls. Joyce, welcome to the program. Hi, Gino. Hi, Joyce. Hi. You had just touched on that Jesus came in the form of man, and he did. So he's a God-man. So isn't God both spirit and man? The second person of the Trinity is. Jesus is God. He is completely God. He is indivisibly God, but he is God who takes on a second nature, a human nature. And Mm -hmm. as a human being, he has a body, and now he will have a body in eternity. But the Father and the, and the Spirit do not, I repeat, do not have bodies. What about when you go to John 16, 9 and on down, where, where Philip is asking Jesus to show him where he's going, and Jesus said that when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Correct. The Father and I are one. Correct. They're all one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Correct. Mm-hmm. But that position and that passage doesn't negate all that I just said about yes. no one has seen the Father at any time. And so if we ask and we answer the question, well, again, to your point, the passage says Jesus is correcting him and says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In what way have you seen the Father? In all of his glory, in all of his fullness, in all of his majesty? And then does that mean that the Bible has a contradiction? That no, no one has seen the, 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 the that no one has seen God at any time? So if you have if no one has seen God at any time, then what did Jesus mean when he said to Philip he who has seen me has seen the Father. Just like the Pharisees couldn't recognize that Jesus was God. They couldn't see. There was God right in front of them, physically in front of them. They're blind. So the God Father is a spirit. Jesus, the Son of God, is God-man, and the Holy Spirit is a spirit. Correct. and one. And like you said, we cannot begin to even understand all of God's attributes and all yes. of who He is. And I don't, I don't, talking. yeah. And I do not claim to understand. So, yeah, there is a sense. There is, there is a huge sense in which what we're talking about things, we're hinting at things that are incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. But the way that I would also talk about that is say, but not unintelligible. In other words, do we know everything that we want to know? No. Do we know everything? No. But do we know something? And I think that the answer is yes, we know what Jesus has told us. We know what the Bible says about God and about Jesus, about the human condition, about what it means to um, to be saved. Mm-hmm. We're asking a question. Do you believe there's a relationship within the Trinity? 
I believe that there is a relationship within the Trinity, that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. The Bible seems to indicate that the Father loves the Son, and that the, that the Son and the Father love the Spirit. And so when we use that term relationship, I'm using it in the sense of that these three distinct persons relate to one another as persons, and yet in no way diminishes the reality that there's one singular God. In, in other words, the Father isn't more God than the Son, and the Son isn't more God than the Spirit, and the Spirit isn't more God than the Father or the Son. They are all equally, immutably, unchangeably, completely God. Yeah, it is something. And and so, uh, again, this is, to me, one of the most powerful reasons that this isn't the product of human imagination, that human beings, if you're going to try and think of a God, this isn't the God you're going to come up with because we want to create a God that we understand, and there is a, there is a measure of mystery and to the reality that this self-existent God um, has chosen to save you and save me by sending the Son. And you, you know that, that I was I was um, I was watching a television show the other day about a guy who died, and you're probably maybe you're young enough to remember the Man from Uncle. I'm young enough to remember that. <laughs> well, remember Robert Vaughn was in it. and He played Han Solo. And David McCallum was in it, and he played Elia Kiriakin. And in this movie, you know, the TV show, Elia Kiriakin, David McCallum had died. And he was he was speaking uh, in his capacity as a character on the show. And he talks about he was talking about the grief and the pain that a person was experiencing because this person went out of this person's life, and and. And this person was so happy. They were free to live again. You know, they, they were so tied to the job. You know, he'd lost his his wife and children in a terrible, terrible murder. And, and, and he said something stunning to me. He said, our little pain doesn't seem to mean much because of his peace. If, if I can experience a little pain so that he could experience a lot of peace, I'm willing to have that. And I couldn't help but thinking of Jesus. Jesus experiences our pain so that we can experience his peace, peace with God. So it's just that dynamic, strange, amazing thing that God saves us. Amen. Can I say just one more thing? Sure. When you're talking about that, it just reminds me how God made Jesus the heir of all things and exalted him and gave him a name above all names. Right. So he's an heir. God made him an heir. Right. And that makes you an heir as well because Paul writes, and we are co-heirs. In other words, here's what's really remarkable to me. The only reason why I get to go to heaven is because Jesus goes to heaven. The only reason why I get to have 
anything. The, the only reason why I get to inherit anything is because Jesus has inherited everything. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> thank you, Gino. No, no, thank you for that interesting, amazing, thought-provoking call. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you so much. Hey, God bless you. 303 873 1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program. And again, I was talking about, you know, what determines if a person goes to heaven or hell. Come back to that subject when we come back. 303-873-1935. I'll be back, hopefully, prayerfully. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. Again, the number is 303-873-1935. We've been talking a lot about a lot of different things. But again, um, on that subject, what determines if a person goes to heaven or hell? And you'll remember maybe this passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So, apart from the work of Jesus, every human being is condemned to an eternity in hell. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what do you have to do to get your name written in that book and avoid being tossed into that lake. Well, God's freely offered the gift of heaven, forgiveness, reconciliation with God. So what determines if a person's going to go to heaven or hell? Well, is whether that person has been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ the Lord. And so going to hell is the default position of humanity. People who tongue-in-cheek, or maybe not so much tongue-in-cheek, suggest that, well, you should go to hell. Well, that's the default position of humanity. That's the place of human destiny apart from Christ. Going to heaven is the free gift of God's grace received by faith, offered to all people, according to Ephesians chapter 2. So God wants people to be reconciled with him. So he provided a way. And what way is that? Well, Jesus says he is the way. I'm the way, Jesus says in John 14 and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, are you saying that every person is invited to go to heaven? That's exactly what I'm saying. Going to heaven or hell 
has everything to do with God's willingness to act and rescue us. So when God created the world, everything was good in the beginning. He created humanity in his image. He provided food for them, but they were told there was one tree from which they weren't allowed to eat. They were supposed to trust his provision, follow his command, remain in a relationship with him, experience the fullness of life. But they chose to disobey him. And it was that disobedience that would result in death. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul, writing to the Romans, says, The wages of sin is death. But the free, the free, the absolutely free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Adam and Eve, the first humans, ate the forbidden fruit. You know the story in Genesis chapter 3. And it was this rebellion, this disobedience that marred humanity, put sin in the universe and in the human heart. And then you see the lasting effects all around you. So our relationship with God, with one another, and with the created world is broken by sin. Death is now a reality in our world, and the sin of Adam is passed down to his descendants, to all of humanity. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. But even as God explained to Adam and Eve what their disobedience would mean, he promised a Savior. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and between you and your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It was a promise that a Savior was going to come and defeat the devil. Someone was going to come and restore humanity, reconcile humanity, make it possible to have a relationship with God. The Savior is Jesus. Jesus is God with us. He's fully God and fully human. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born to a virgin named Mary. He's God in the flesh, the one who reconciles human beings to God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, but this, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So he comes. He lives the perfect life. He dies a horrible death. But he also raises Jesus from the dead. 
So, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, for it's with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. There's no special prayer that you have to pray, but I would pray something like, Lord, I know that I've gone against you and I deserve condemnation. I know that you're loving and merciful and gracious and just. I believe that you've made reconciliation possible. I believe that Jesus is the only Savior, and I want to submit to him as my Lord. I fully believe that God, Jesus, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for my sin, rose from the dead bodily. I believe he's, his sacrifice is sufficient for my sin and that his righteousness can be applied to me. Please forgive me. Please make me your child. Please give me your spirit. Complete the work of sanctification and making me holy. Thank you for salvation. So guess what? If you prayed that prayer, and if you really meant it, the Bible gives us every reason to believe that you've made the transition from darkness to light, from death to life, that you have every reason to believe that your sin is forgiven, that you've been reconciled to God, and that the promise of heaven applies to you. Who's going to go to heaven? You are. <laughs> if you really know, love, and trust Christ. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for joining me. Uh, hopefully, prayerfully, I'll be back tomorrow taking your calls and answering your questions. 